As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. And confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. Help us in this by your spirit, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Joshua. book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible between Deuteronomy and Judges. If you're visiting with us, we've been considering a series in the evening through the book of Joshua, and we've come to Joshua 10, verse 28. So Joshua chapter 10, beginning our reading at verse 28, and we'll read through the end of chapter 11. So we have a, long, a longer reading this evening, but um, about the end of the war uh, for conquest in Canaan. So chapter 10, beginning at verse 28 and reading through the end of chapter 11. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. And he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam the king of Gezer came up to Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword and devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to, he- to Hebron, and they fought against it, and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and its king, and its towns, and every person in it. He left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction, and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir, and fought against it, and he captured it with its king, and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining. Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. When Jabin, the king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akashaph, and to its kings, 
who were in the northern hill country and in the Araba south of Chinaroth and the lowland and in Naphtor to the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misraphoth, Mayim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction, There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and the land of Goshen, and the lowland, and the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from from Hebron to Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, We read that longer section because we have here all together recorded the end of the war. Uh, the end of the war of conquest, that last uh, sentence really summarizes the whole, and the land had rest from war. 
This is an end of the story of conquest. Um, there will be other skirmishes, other battles, other pockets of resistance to be cleaned up in the book, but this is the end of the war. The conquest has been won. The Lord has delivered his people through this to victory and given them the promised land just as he promised he would do. Um, And this is a very serious passage. It's not an easy thing to read through. Probably not many people have life verses about Joshua devoted them all to destruction and left nothing breathing. I mean, that's not typically where we we look for comfort in the scriptures. It's It's a hard word. Um, It's a word that has to be reinforced with the reminder that this was all at the Lord's command. This was all the Lord's hardening of hearts that they would resist rather than try to make peace. Uh, But it still is a difficult picture. And it's a difficult picture because as we've gone on to say over and over again, looking at this war through the book of Joshua, it's meant to picture for us the final battle, uh, the final contest of the Lord coming in glory to visit final judgment on those who refuse to make peace with the king. Um, And so it has this purpose for us of showing uh, that picture of what the final judgment will be like for those who refuse to make peace with the king um, and who will instead harden their hearts against him and try to make war with him and resist his kingdom. Um, This is all for purpose to picture to us um, what it is to resist the living God and to resist his Christ. Um, And so we want to see this passage, a very simple story of God conquering Canaan for his people Um, And we want to think about how this story is presented to us in terms of a great victory, um, the summary of a grueling history, um, and finally a glorious summary of what God has done for his people. That's how we want to think about this story tonight, this great victory uh, that is a story of a grueling history, uh, but ends with this glorious summary. It's a great victory that God delivers for his people Um, We have this conquest of Canaan here really told in two campaigns with two summaries. Uh, We we had said that it's kind of hard for us when we don't have a solid grasp of the geography of the Holy Land to know where all these names are. It's enough to try to read them um, on a Sunday evening without stumbling over them, much less to know where they are and to be able to form that in our mind's eye. But we said last time that Joshua had successfully done what most campaigners look to do with Canaan, take that central plateau, and then you could wage war as you pleased, either north or south. Um, He had struck in through the central plateau, through Jericho, Ai, Gibeon, and then had had war made on him from the southern kingdoms who tried to band together um, and attack him with those five king, that five king coalition, tried to come against Israel and be destroyed. That was the story we read last week. And the end of chapter 10 is really recounting the southern campaign of Israel as they march through the south of Canaan and destroy all of the resistance that's gathered there. So even though we might not have in our mind's eye the strict geography, if we can think of that idea of fight, sort of fighting into the central part of the promised land and then having the south come against you and then counterattacking south and mopping up the resistance in the south of the land, Um, That's the first campaign and summary that we get um, in chapter 10. So we have the southern campaign in verses 28 through 39, and then a summary of that campaign told to us at the end of chapter 10 um, in verses 40 through 43. That's the sort of summary of the battle, that Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. Uh, That's the summary of the southern campaign concluded successfully. 
Um, and as God has done over and over again, he's used prior victories to inspire further conflict. Um, that's how that southern coalition rose against the people of Israel when they heard what they'd done to everyone else. Um, when they heard what they'd done to Jericho and to Ai and that the Gibeonites, who were all warriors, would rather make peace with them than try to fight against them, they, that inspired them to put this coalition together and to try to come from the south against Israel, and they'd been utterly destroyed. And after that great victory that the Lord had delivered to his people, it inspires the northern kingdoms to say, you know, if we don't band together now and do something about this threat, um, we're going to be consumed. And so that's what we find them doing, that God causes them to bring all the northern strength together of Canaan to try one final push against the Lord's people. And they gather together a great horde to go against God's people, an army so big, we're told, it numbered as many as the sand on the seashore. It's a way of saying you can't count how big that army was. Um, this is the last and the, and the greatest opposition. And when God delivers them into the hands of his people, it signals a great victory for the people of God. Joshua's southern campaign is successful through all those towns. It sparks this northern resistance and allows him to crush that resistance as well. And what is God's overarching purpose through all of this? Well, to show how the promise to Joshua is being fulfilled more and more. One commentator said, the entire conquest of Canaan, including this part, is to be seen as the result of God's granting the land to the people of his choice. Um, through all of this warfare, there can be no mistaking whose hand is guiding all of this, at whose will this is all being done. We see that uh, in verse 30. The Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel and struck it with the edge of the sword. The Lord is giving these places to his people. Uh, they, they proceed through this southern campaign with the Lord's blessing. And so even though we see these, the, the justice inflicted against these places is severe, it's at God's command. Joshua is doing what he's been told to do. And he's fulfilling everything that the Lord had commanded him. Um, he did, we're told in the end of verse 40 of chapter 10, he did just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Um, he's to be commended for faithfully following God's call for him. These are not to be seen ultimately as the acts of some kind of cruel, genocidal people, uh, but a God who is judging justly, um, in whose hands is justice, who rules by right, as the true judge of the world and is issuing his judgment on the Canaanites. That's how it's to be seen. Uh, verse 42 tells us of chapter 10, And Joshua captured all these kings and all their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Now this is the Lord's victory. The Lord's great victory worked through his people. Um, and the story goes from great to greater as the scene shifts from this southern battle to this great northern battle. Um, that the, here is the last and greatest resistance gathered against God's people. Um, it's organized by Jabin, the king of Hazor, who seems to be head of all these kingdoms in the north. Uh, so probably the, the mightiest and greatest of the kings of the north organizes this coalition in chapter 10 or chapter 11, verse 10. A massive and powerful army is gathered, great numbers of infantry, um, the high-tech weapons of the day, cavalry and chariots, 
which were uh, difficult for uh, most armies to contend with. Um, and so they're all gathered, and this great army is gathered together, and God's people um, have been kind of taught how to think of these things throughout this book. Um, by this point, as we've read and we've seen all that God has done for his people, even as we read of the army and we read of how they're banding together and we read of how much tech they have and how much strength they have, we should be saying, so what? <laughs> I mean, at this point, they've tried about everything and none of it's been successful. Um, you cannot resist the living God by the strength of your arms. We should have learned to expect something from God. And God in his graciousness and his kindness once again repeats his promises back before this great battle is joined. Um, just because we know what's going to happen, we can kind of guess what's going to happen based on everything that's happened so far in this book. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't have been a fearsome enemy for the people of God to face. Uh, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be a fearsome sight to see this great army that's been gathered against you. Um, and so God repeats his promises to his people so that they can um, be encouraged, so that God can fuel the fire of their faith in the face of this great enemy. Um, because the enemy is great, but the Lord is greater by far. In fact, the Lord in his wisdom and, and knowledge of all things has already predicted just such a situation. Uh, he told Moses in Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, when you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, the Lord knows what faces his people. There's nothing that comes as a surprise to him. He has declared the end from the beginning. He had already told Moses, there are going to be times when you face armies that are greater than you. And in those times, you're to remember you have already faced armies greater than you. Pharaoh and all of his army and his chariots, what came of them? Um, well, you'd have to get divers and look for them at the bottom of the Red Sea. The Lord has destroyed them all. They were an army far greater than all of God's people. The Lord has triumphed over them before, and the Lord will triumph over them again. Um, the victory will be so complete that he tells Joshua, you'll be able to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Um, you'll have a complete victory over all that are opposed to you. This is the God who's already thrown the horse and rider into the sea. This is the same God who will triumph over his people, and that's his promise to Joshua. The Lord will do it. What do we read in chapter 11, verse 6? Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Now the Lord will fight for his people. The Lord will triumph over his people. And we see that just as God has done for his people over and over again, his promises to them act as a catalyst for their action. Um, maybe the last thing you would teach in military strategy is if you've got this huge army that has this high-tech equipment and outnumbers you, would be to attack them immediately. Um, that seems to be what Joshua does. He falls on them when they are not ready. Maybe they thought their great numbers were their strength and weren't ready for an attack when it came. But whether this was, you know, 
the results of bad human planning or divine intervention, the Israelites fall on this great army and do to it exactly what the Lord said they would do to it. Utterly destroyed it. Um, the promises of God act as this wonderful catalyst for action in verses 7 through 9, and they won this great victory. And it's, it's good that Joshua acted speedily the way that he did um, and fell upon them when he did, where he did. Um, because again, the, the history is not so clear to us, the geography is not so clear to us, but what we do know from history is that this was really bad ground to try to run chariots over. Um, historically, the place where Joshua falls on them is notoriously bad territory for chariots. Um, there's ancient documents talking about armies trying to walk, go through the Galilean hill country with their chariots and talking about how they had to take them apart, disassemble them, and carry them because it was no country for chariots. And so you see that by the Lord's guidance and with the Lord's encouragement, Israel falls on them when they're in exactly the weakest spot to try to use their technology to their own best advantage. Um, this, again, I think is, is intended to make it clear of what a foolish thing it is to go to war against the Lord. Um, to have all this might and to have all this might that you can't even bring to bear in the field um, because the Lord knows the battle better. Um, the Lord delivers this enemy into their hands and the battle belongs to the Lord and, he does, and Joshua does in the strength of the Lord to the northern kingdoms what he'd done to the southern kingdoms. They're delivered into their hands and utterly destroyed. And what are God's people to take from this great victory? That in just a couple chapters tells the story of the complete conquest of the promised land. What is God teaching his people through this? Well, first of all, we're being taught the obvious. What a great and powerful God God's people serve. What a great and powerful God God's people serve. It's a simple lesson, but the simple lesson is not to be missed. We serve a great and powerful God uh, who is able to do all that he's promised his people. But secondly, we see the importance of having a faithful servant to lead the people of God. What is the echoing refrain throughout this passage? Joshua did what he was told. Joshua did all that he was told. Just as Moses told it, just as God told Moses, Moses told Joshua, Joshua did it. Um, that's what we said in the beginning of our study through Joshua, that when we think of the great heroes of the faith, maybe Joshua doesn't meet our list right away. But the simple story of Joshua is the simple story of being told to do something and doing it. Of hearing the word of the Lord and obeying the word of the Lord. Uh, he is... He is interestingly unique in that he is one of the first throughout the history of God's people to be obeying the word. He had the covenant that would have been written up and given to Moses. He had the word of God. And he was a servant who was diligent to obey the word that he had. To take the word as it had been given to him and to do according to that word what he was called to do. And we have that great summary of his work in verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He had the word, and how much of it did he leave undone? None of it. None of it. That's as good as can be said of a servant of the Lord. That he did what he was told and left nothing undone. This is how Joshua is to be remembered. A faithful servant of God. A faithful servant of his word who did all that was commanded of him. And in this sense, it should be clear to us then that Joshua becomes for us a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. A type of the Lord who would come who would do all that his father commanded him, who would leave nothing undone of all that was promised in his word, who would do it completely, faithfully, fully, um, and obey everything, who could say when his work was done on earth, it is finished. And if we were to look at that, that statement from John's gospel, as we've had opportunity to do, before, it's clear what Jesus is saying. What is finished? The scriptures are finished. The scriptures are fulfilled in my dying. All the word that was to be accomplished, Jesus accomplished. And he left nothing undone. And that's a reminder to us of the kind of Savior we have, a faithful servant. That's why we don't need to doubt anything regarding our salvation. All of our salvation was accomplished for us by the faithful servant, Jesus Christ, on his cross. By that one sacrifice, he's accomplished all that's necessary for our salvation. The people of God should know that and should rejoice in the fact he has left nothing undone. There is nothing more that you need done for your salvation that Jesus has left undone. That is the glorious good news of the gospel. The Christ by his cross has brought us forgiveness of sins, eternal life, He's finished what the word called to be done for our salvation. He has done it. He has finished it. And he's left nothing undone for you or for me. Remember that if you're ever filled with doubt about your salvation. If you ever are feeling like you've left things undone. That you've not been as faithful a servant as you ought to be. Which of us does not read this about Joshua and say, Oh Lord, I wish that I could say what he said. I've left nothing undone. I can think of lots of things I've left undone. Lots of things I've done I shouldn't have done. Um, I wish I could say what, jo- what is said of Joshua here. But you see, I don't have to fear because I know that my Savior did not leave anything undone. That he has done everything that's necessary for our salvation. It's finished. That's our hope as Christians. Where we have failed, he has not failed. Uh, he has done it all, and praise be to his name. Uh, thanks be for our faithful Savior. But this great vis- victory is told in terms of a, a grueling history. Um, it might be easy to say, look at you know the, the 10, 11 chapters we've looked at, and say, well, you know, this is an easy sort of just sweep through. It's certainly easy to read it that way. Um, it almost becomes repetitive. It becomes repetitive and, you know, it's just steamrolling over one city after another and we can almost get to the point of wondering why does it have to be written out like this? Can't we just say, see what happened to Hebron? You know, it, it, it's, all, it's all portioned out like this. But I think it's in, important that we are a cause to read over it, to think about it, to think about those places they had to go, to think about those battles they had to fight. 
Because the story of conquest is told over six short chapters in this book. The warfare really begins in chapter 6 and is over by chapter 11. It might be easy to say, well, that was pretty quick. But we're told this was no short war. This was no short time. Look at what verse 18 tells us in chapter 11. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. This was a grueling history that they fought through. We're not sure exactly how long the war of conquest lasts. Estimates have been given of about five to seven years. I think at least seven is a good is a good thing. So we're talking about a long war. If you read a history of the Civil War, five years, that's a long war. If you read a history of World War One or World War Two, those were long wars. It doesn't have to be years and years and years, you know, it doesn't have to be a thirty years war to be a long war. This was a long war, a long and difficult time. If we think about those wars that we know a little better, we can get a better sense of what this would have been like to fight a war for seven years, to be on a campaign for that long. This is a long and difficult campaign that's described to us over these short chapters. This call was a daunting and demanding calling. And God's word is also teaching us here too something of the pattern of what God does for his people. The victory is not easily won in the blink of an eye. God certainly could have done that, couldn't he? He could have just laid them waste with a thought. Um, But that's not how he worked. He worked in such a way that he told them the victory would be eventual, inevitable, but it was going to require hard nights and harder days. It was going to require a lot of work on the part of God's people to bring it to completion. It was going to be hard times filled with successes and setbacks and tragedies and triumphs. And this too is a good lesson for the church militant to learn in this world. Sometimes we just expect easy victories. Um, we, we're, we're Calvinists, so we don't say that we expect things to come easily, but we find ourselves feeling that way at times. Now, shouldn't this become easier? Um, shouldn't the work of the church be a little easier to do? Um, with the people that have been gathered together, much less to try to gather the people that are out in the world, shouldn't this be easier? Shouldn't this be quicker? We like the idea of kind of these clean, perfect victories. It's much harder to think about having to fight a kind of long, difficult, and dirty, imperfect campaign in this life. But that's what the church has been called to. After all, wasn't this true for our Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't he have hard days and hard nights in his winning the victory for his people? A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We confess that in the catechism in regards to his suffering. We make it clear that he suffered hell on the cross, particularly on the cross, but on the whole of his life was a life of suffering. That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Now, if we're called to take up our crosses and follow him, we shouldn't be surprised that we are entering into the grueling history of the church. Uh, A long march. Inevitable victory, that's where it ends. Uh, But it's a long and difficult path that we're being called to walk 
between now and then. And we shouldn't be surprised then when we experience the difficulties of this history. Um, it's easy to read through these marches and as you know, think about, well, this was no country for chariots. Isn't that wonderful how God worked it? Well, if it was no country for chariots, it was difficult country for infantry. You had to walk all these places. Um, this is a long and difficult slog. And we can feel like at times this life is a long and difficult slog. And in those times, we have to be reminded that the Lord has a righteous purpose in all that he's doing. There was a righteous purpose in all that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered. It was, there was a purpose in that. He can sympathize with those who are suffering because of what he suffered. We're even told in Hebrews he was perfected through what he suffered. The things he learned that can only be learned, the things that were done that can only be done through suffering. But none of it was pointless. It all was serving the purpose of our deliverance, showing us God's grace, bringing us righteousness and eternal life. And we know from Scripture that our suffering is the way God uses to sanctify us, to refine us for ultimate good and glory that awaits us that there are things that we too can only learn through suffering. Um, We are participating in this long, grueling history, but we are also participating in the Lord's righteous purposes for it. He does nothing arbitrarily or pointlessly. He's moving everything towards the purpose for which he intends them. And we see something of the long and grueling history and its purpose revealed um, in, in chapter 11, verses 19 and 20. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeah, and they took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed as the Lord had commanded Moses. There are plenty of people who have looked at this history of conquest and said, what cruelty um, what, what terrible barbarism to just wipe out people in this kind of warfare. And how important it is to have God's word come to us and say, you know, not one of those people sought peace with God. Why did they find the edge of the sword? Because not one of them would make peace with God. The only people who made peace with God did through, did through deception and lies uh, to try to get something they knew they couldn't otherwise get. There was no one who came and sought and made peace with God. Right? No one who did what Rahab did at the very beginning of this book and said there's a God coming in judgment. We've heard what he's done to Egypt. We've heard what he's done to the kings across the Jordan. We have no heart to go out to war. We know we can't withstand him. Cover me in his name. Protect me in his name. There's no hope for me but his name. There's no hope for me but that covenant Lord that he would cover me with his protection. No one asked for that. No one sought peace with God. And they all got what they asked for. War with God. This is to show that God was completely just in everything that he did. This people would not have peace with God. They did not want it. They wanted war, and they got war. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great line in The Great Divorce when he says, 
You know, all those who seek heaven find it. There are those who say to God, there are those that God says, thy will be done in the end. And there are those who say to God, thy will be done. Um, Either you say to God, thy will be done, or he'll say to you, thy will be done. Everyone who wants wants hell, wants heaven gets it, and no one goes to hell except the people that choose it. That choose to make war with God. And what this is doing for all people in all times is saying, this is what you get when you make war with God. Destruction. No one's left who makes war with God. And that's true even in the pictures of final judgment that we see in Revelation. People will ask the land to swallow them. They will ask the hills to fall on them. They will wail on account of him who they pierce, but they will never seek to make peace with God. That's the one thing they won't do. And so what is God doing through all of this? He's saying, make peace with me while I might be found. Because the alternative is too terrible to contemplate. We're to make peace with God while he might be found. Because God's righteous purpose is to punish the wicked. To punish the wicked so that he might protect his own righteous people. It's also what we know from this. Why did God punish this people? Not just for their wickedness, but to protect his own people. Canaanites represented a contagious spiritual cancer, as one person put it, that would continue to infect God's people and draw them away from him. And he would not allow them to coexist. And if we think that's harsh, it shows how little we understand of sin and its character and the danger of it. Um, One commentator said, we arrogantly pride ourselves on being kinder than God, but we only prove that we haven't a clue about what holiness is, how important it is and how dangerous sin is to us. But this grueling history reminds us that whatever we are called to suffer is promoting God's purpose for his people, which is always his glory and our good. That's why the book, this chapter, this chapter in Israel's history and this chapter of the book ends with the glorious summary of what God has brought his people through this warfare. Um, Verses 21 through 23 uh, provide a really glorious summary of what God has done. I think there's an important purpose in ending with victory over the Anakim. Uh, The purpose of victory over the Anakim, as we have it here, uh, as this last summary of what God does, God eliminates their most feared enemies. The Anakim were the big, strong, tall people that the spies went into the promised land and saw and said, we can't fight against people like that. Remember that? They make us look like grasshoppers. We can't, can't fight against people that are that big. These are those big boys. Um, these were these big guys that they were all so afraid of. And what is the account of their destruction here in verses 21 to 23? And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities, and there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. He exterminated them. God had 
dealt with their most feared enemies and just eliminated them. These are the people they were so afraid of. Not one of them was left remaining in the land. It's a glorious summary of the elimination of their most feared enemies. Joshua cut them off and devoted them to destruction. Um, those in, in, insurmountable enemies just wiped out. Uh, there too is a good lesson for God's people. When we reflect on the enemies that we face in this world. Uh, probably none of us lose sleep over Canaanite giants. At least I hope you don't. Um, we have different things that we fear, different things that we are worried about, different things that seem to be insuperable obstacles to the success of the church in this world. Um, but we have to remember the same God who triumphed over their most feared enemies can triumph over our most feared enemies. Uh, they are as nothing before him. The truth of, the, of Joshua and Caleb's words as young men, spies in the land, is clearly seen. What does it matter how big they are if the Lord fights for us? What does it matter? Uh, God's church needs to remember that in every age. Um, God fights for us. Uh, there's nothing to fear. So there's this glorious summary of the elimination of their most feared enemies. Uh, there's also the distribution of their promised inheritance. Uh, we have that as well. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. We can forget how long they've been a wandering people. Abraham bought land in Canaan, anticipating the day when his people would come there and inherit it. The only piece of the land he ever owned was a burial plot. And Abraham was buried there in faith that the Lord would one day do what he promised to do for his people and would bring them into this land as a home. Since that time, they'd been waiting for this home. Since that time, they'd been waiting for this home. They've been awaiting wandering people for hundreds of years. Um, and so again, that simple summary is a wonderful conclusion to a whole era of the people of God, they finally have a home. They finally have the inheritance that was promised to Abraham. That he had stood on this, on this land, same places, centuries before and looked over it all and God said, this will all be for your children. They will inherit the land. And finally, the time of the inheritance has come. Their waiting, their wandering is at an end. They've come home to their allotment. God's people have reached their promised inheritance. This too is a good reminder for us because we have a promised inheritance, a home we've never been to uh, that's been prepared for us uh, for centuries by our Lord Jesus Christ that we will one day inherit as well. Not an earthly kingdom like God gave them here, but a heavenly one. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 reminds us beautifully that our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself a glorious summary of the inheritance of the people of god and a final reminder of what all this means for the people of god that last wonderful statement the land had rest from war 
what's the last glorious summary, the termination of this long warfare. The termination of this long war footing for the people of God. Um, There's a rest prepared for the people of God. Uh, The church militant is going somewhere. It's accomplishing something in this world. The kingdom of Christ is being built through the church in this world, but it's building towards the rest that waits for the people of God. Uh, This story ends for us in rest. That's an important thing for us to remember as we're going through the slog of this life in the warfare of this world, uh, that there is a rest prepared for the people of God. And we find that rest now to begin through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We're getting a foretaste of that rest even today, the Sabbath day that the Lord has set aside uh, for our rest to anticipate that eternal Sabbath that's coming where God's people will finally find rest. But one day the Lord will come in glory uh, to bring that final Sabbath, that eternal Sabbath to fruition and we will enter into his rest Uh, There's no Monday that follows that Sabbath. And that's a blessing for the people of God uh, to know a rest that's unbroken. We begin to enter it by faith in Christ now, but we'll enter it fully when he returns in glory. So put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and begin now that rest, that rest from war that will come, that rest from wandering, and that rest from waiting that will one day come when the Lord returns in glory. May he come quickly. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of the final judgment that brings complete victory to the people of God. And we are acknowledging as the church militant living in this world that the difficulties often surround us on every side and we feel every bit of the grueling campaign we are on in this world. We pray that you would fill our minds and hearts with this summary that leaves us in this Uh, final chapter that we're looking at in the book of Joshua as we see the elimination of the most feared enemies and the cessation of war and the entry into the inheritance. May that hold out that blessed hope that awaits all your people of God when one day our campaigning in this world will be over and the church militant will become the church triumphant. So Lord, help to hold us with that view of the future that awaits your people Uh, when the difficulties face us in this life. And may we not lose hope or faith, for we know we are led by our Lord Jesus Christ, that we fight under his banner, and he will surely win the victory and come again in glory to make all things new. As we have asked, Lord, speed that day, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.